0: continuing in prayer. Take a seat just a moment. Just give your feet a little rest. And we're going to pray for some folk we probably haven't prayed for in a while. Lord, we pray this morning for the school boards and the superintendents who care for our children. May you keep their vision alive. We pray for the mayors and for the city councils of the communities where we live. May you keep their hearts focused on service. Lord, we pray for our state representatives, Mike, Sheila, Donna, Rebecca, and Gary, and for Sam, who represents us in Washington. We pray for our state and our U.S. Senators, Will, Roy, and Claire. May you give them eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray for our Governor, Jay, Strengthen him when he's discouraged and humble him when he's proud. And for our president, Barack. For them all, we pray, Lord. First confessing that we've rarely prayed for them, though they face confusion, turmoil, and dangers that age them before our very eyes. At times, we've been very critical of them though most of us understand very little of what goes on in their profession, just as very few understand what really transpires in all of our professions day to day. We pray you strengthen all these leaders for their calling. We pray this morning for all these men and women that you would teach them and teach us that this is your world given to us as a gift. And as these leaders and each of us Uh, teach each of these leaders and each of us that as bearers of your image we must try to rule this world as you would rule it for your purpose and in light of your goodness your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven this is our prayer this summer we are studying the book of second timothy in the new testament to understand Second Timothy, I'd like to start us out in the world of fantasy and the world of fiction. Han Solo, <laughs> born in Corellia and orphaned at an early age. He was captured by space pirates, and that's probably where he learned how to be a smuggler. Han Solo never wanted anything but a normal life, a safe life. So as a young man, he made a bold step. He left the space pirates, and he joined the Imperial Flight Academy. You don't go straighter than that in the Outer Rim. Han had been flying spacecraft in combat since he was a teenager, so he moved up very quickly in the ranks of the Empire. Finally, after a childhood filled with running and hiding, he now has stability. And then one day, Han sees one of his superior officers has captured this hairy alien monster, a Wookiee named Chewbacca, and his superior officer is torturing this captive creature. Now, Han knows if he intervenes on behalf of this alien, he's going to lose his commission and all the stability that he's fought so hard to obtain. But he can't stand to see this noble thing get beat up, so... So he intervenes, and he escapes and rescues Chewbacca, and they escape together into space. Now, desperate for income, he falls back on the only marketable skill he has. He starts running drugs for a gangster named Jabba the Hutt. When he's hauling an especially big shipment, the Empire stops him, and they're going to board the vessel, so he dumps the entire shipment out into space. So he's not arrested, but this gets him into hot water with the owner of all that spice, who places a price on his head so large every bounty hunter in the galaxy is looking for him. And then one afternoon, at the armpit of space, hiding out in a crowded cantina, Han Solo meets Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker. Two hicks trying to hitch their way across space, but apparently very well-funded hicks because they're offering enough credits for him to pay back his entire debt. Finally, the blessed safety and stability he set out would be his again. It wasn't easy, but Han Solo does safely deliver his passengers to the secret headquarters of a galactic rebellion. He gets his money, and he's headed back to pay off his debts to Jabba the Hutt. Now at last, safety and security and everything this orphan boy from Corellia has never had is within reach. But somewhere between Yavin 4 and Tatooine, Han Solo has a change of heart. Somehow he decides safety and security isn't everything. What changed his mind? Was it the idealism of the farm boy, Luke Skywalker? Was it the mystical wisdom of the wizard Ben Kenobi? Was it the fiery courage of the princess, Leia? Was it all three? Something convinced him to turn his ship around and join the struggle against evil, to fly directly toward a danger so huge, the first time he saw it, he thought it was a small moon. Han decided there is a holy danger, a good danger. A danger that makes you something better than you used to be. A danger worth risking because it serves a higher purpose and a higher calling. Though he once said, no mystical energy field controls my destiny, suddenly he's not so sure. We're studying 2 Timothy in the scriptures this morning. (laughs) To understand it, I'd, I'd like to take you now into the real world, the world of history and the world of sports. Eric Little, born 1902 in Tientsin, China, son of a Scottish Christian missionary. Theirs was not a life of safety. At the turn of the century, Chinese warlords were slaughtering thousands of Chinese Christians and hundreds of Western, Western missionaries. Still, his family remained in that place with a baby, and minis- two babies actually, and, and ministered in the name of Jesus until... Eric was five years old. Then they got a missionary furlough, a break, and they returned to Scotland. And this is how they did it back then. They put their son in a missionary boarding school with other missionary kids, and they went back to China. They would not see him again other than for six months until he was 20 years old. It was at the missionary school that Eric began his career as a track athlete. At age 14, he was first in high school in high jump, long jump, and 100-yard dash. By his senior year in college, Eric had earned a place on the 1924 British Olympic team. Unfortunately, the 100-meter race, his best race, the race he was favored for gold in, the race Britain had never won a gold in ever, was scheduled in the Paris Olympics on a Sunday. Now, in Eric Little's mind, Sunday was a day that belonged to the Lord. It was not a day for playing games, not even the Olympic Games. Now, I'll be honest. If I were Eric's pastor and he had asked me about this, I would have said, go run in the Olympics. (laughs) But Eric's convictions about this were strong at 22 years old. On the morning of his best event, he was in a church in Paris sharing the story of what God had done in his life. The British Olympic Committee was angry with him. All of Scotland was angry with him. But Eric stuck to his convictions, and instead he entered the 440-meter race, a totally different race, more than four times as long, requiring a totally different set of skills and training. Not only that, but when they draw for what lane you get, Eric draws the outside lane, the lane that makes you look like you're in first place, but you're just even with everyone, the lane where you never get to see the other runners to set your pace against. And then they fire the pistol, and he starts making mistakes. He started out that race at a blistering speed, a 100 meters speed. All his teammates know he cannot maintain this speed for the entire race. Although, by the halfway point, he's three meters ahead of everyone. But with 220 meters to go, they're certain he's going to fall behind. But in the last lap, he increases. The last half lap, he gets even faster. In a race, it's usually won by tenths of a second. Eric Little wins wins the 440 meters by five meters. 47.6 seconds. On that day... A new world record. Now he's arrived where every athlete hopes to arrive celebrity. They call him the Flying Scotsman. They call him the fastest man in the world. He's survived the dangers of China as a child, some early athletic injuries. Now he has arrived. He's a gold medalist, Olympian. But Eric has another surprise for the world. At 22 years old, after one Olympics, he retires from running. He's going to become a missionary. And guess where he wants to go? China. Now, he's already influencing the lives of people for God right where he is because he's now become like a precursor to fellowship of Christian athletes. Scottish men will now come and hear what he has to say about God because he's proven he's no hypocrite. This man gave up his best shot at a gold medal so that he could go worship his God on a Sunday. This is no pretender. He's got tons of influence. Why does he feel like he needs to go to China? Because something convinces Eric Little that safety isn't everything. There is, he decides, a holy danger, a good danger, a danger that makes you something better than you used to be, a danger worth risking because it serves a higher purpose and a higher power. When your brothers or sisters are suffering, he says, you can't turn your back on them just because... You have enough credits to pay back Job of the hut. He goes and lives in China for a very long time. 1937, Japan invades China without warning. For two years, Eric and now his wife and children did what they could to ease the suffering of the Chinese people, but it just gets worse. In 1939, they're up for furlough. They're allowed to leave. They go back to her native home of Canada, and they live in idyllic peace. For a few months, they can't stand it. They go back to China. They continue their work among the suffering. After Pearl Harbor, conditions become even worse. After months of prayer, they decide to send his pregnant wife and his two daughters back to Canada. Eric stays in China alone. In 1943, all foreigners in Eric's town are gathered up and tossed into a Japanese prison compound. And here's where Eric really gets busy. He taught Bible studies. He organized a school, because he was also a science teacher, for the captured children in the camp. He organized cricket games and sporting events, but not on Sunday. He led worship services. On one cold day in 1944, he gave his Olympic running shoes to a 17-year-old boy who was going barefoot for the winter. We're here to study Second Timothy and the Bible this morning. To understand it, I'd like to take us now into the world of Scripture, when it was written. So the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter, has been arrested again. Christianity is spreading rapidly across the empire, but it's not yet attained enough numbers to be dangerous. Certainly no people of great influence have become followers of Christ yet. And the emperor knows if you're going to crush this rebellion, now is the time to nip it in the bud. Find the leaders, disgrace them, strike the shepherd, scatter the sheep, cut off the head of the snake, crush the rebellion with one swift stroke. Now Paul has already had one trial, the letter says, and it did not go well. Paul has started riots in, the city, in cities in Rome. His beliefs have been at the center of civil unrest. And when you arrest Paul and you bring him in and you ask him point blank, do you believe this king you follow, Jesus, whom you say is also God, is superior to our king and God, the emperor? He never gives you the answer that you want. So his next stop is the chopping block, the headsman's sword. His imprisonment is already having the desired effect. It's already weakening the followers of Jesus. The churches in Asia Minor, or the Romans called it Asia, we call it Turkey now, are already renouncing Paul. They're already disassociating with him. They're already denying his teaching. Though he claims that he has followers all over the Mediterranean and he's writing letters to them, he has had very few visitors since he came to prison in Rome. Now old and half blind. Paul asks his friend Luke, one of his last allies left in Rome, to help him write a letter to a young pastor in Ephesus named Timothy. And so now what we call 2 Timothy 1, verse 15, Paul writes this, dear Timothy. As you know, everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Even Fugilos and Hermogenes. Now remember, in first century Rome, when you say everyone in Asia, you mean everyone in what we now call Asia Minor or Turkey. But still, how awful is it to make enemies of an entire subcontinent? And who is Fugilas and Hermogenes? They were Christians, I gather. They're popular enough that Timothy's going to know who they are just by name. I wonder if they weren't church leaders. I wonder at one time if... Paul hadn't taught them something about Jesus. I wonder if one time he hadn't been welcomed to come to their churches and teach. And I wonder what changed. Were they bad-mouthing Paul now? Were they disassociating from him? When his name came up, they say, Paul, oh, that guy who's up for execution in Rome. Yeah, we don't really follow him. Our church isn't really part of his thing. We barely know that guy. Whatever it was, evidently everyone in Asia Minor was doing it. Or were they? Because as soon as Paul says, everyone in Asia has abandoned me, he immediately remembers the name of someone who didn't. Someone named Onesephorus, verse 16. May the Lord show a special kindness to Onesephorus and all his family because he often visited and encouraged me. He was never ashamed of me because I was in chains. When he came to Rome, he searched everywhere until he found me. Onosephorus, head of a family, it says. By the Greek, it may indicate that it was a large household with servants. Evidently, when Onesiphorus heard what had happened to Paul, he didn't badmouth him. He didn't distance himself. He got on a boat and went to Rome to find him. More than once he did this, Paul says. Now, Onesiphorus, if we can use our imagination a little here, because it doesn't say, but evidently when he heard what had happened to Paul, he said, this isn't right. Someone has to go see him. Someone has to go stand with him. Someone has to go take care of him. Now, at that time, Rome is a city of over 4 million people. There are no phone books, no directories, no internet to help you find any one person that you're looking for. And not to mention, Paul is in prison. Was he under house arrest? Just him and a couple of guards and some chain? Don't know. Was he in a dungeon? Don't know. Was he in a sprawling prison camp outside of Rome? Rome was incarcerating so many people, they were building prisons everywhere back then. Don't know. Onesephorus had to find him, though, and he only had a few days to do it. I don't know if you know, you, you may know this as a historical note, but Romans did not feed and water their prisoners. Your family and friends had to do that for you. And if you didn't have any family or friends left, then your sentence took care of itself in about seven days. So Onesephorus has a loaf of bread and a wineskin, and he's walking around the streets, and he's asking, um, Where's the prison? <laughs> This is Rome. Which prison are you talking about? Any prison, I suppose. And when he gets to the prison, he has to say, I'm looking for a prisoner. His name is Paul. He might be here under the name Saul. He is a Roman citizen from Tarsus. We have 400 prisoners in this building alone. Twelve were new today. Three died last night. I can't keep track of them all. But I don't think we have a Paul or a Saul, so tricampus meritus out at the edge of town and around and around Rome he goes and the closer he gets the more dangerous this whole thing becomes because Paul's an enemy of the state Paul is known to lead a seditious cult he knows Onesiphorus knows he's getting close when the guards begin to say Paul? Paul brought in from Macedonia, Paul? yes can I see him? Perhaps. And what did you say your name was? And uh, where are you from again? And what's your business here? Is anyone traveling in Rome with you today? And could we ask where you'll be staying while you're here? Why did Onesephoris risk this journey? Why did he risk being associated with a known criminal? He had a family and a good life back in Asia. Why did he come to Rome and why would he do this more than once? Because something convinces Onesephorus that safety isn't everything. There is, he decides, a holy danger, a good danger, a danger worth risking because it serves a higher power and a higher purpose. When your brothers or sisters are suffering, someone has to go and take care of them. You can't leave them where you are just because you have the money to pay back to your debts, just because you have a gold medal and a Christian speaking tour to go on. We're studying 2 Timothy this morning. And now we need to to bring all these worlds into our world. Many of us came from bad places in life, right? And Jesus rescued us. Do you remember? He brought us to safety. In our culture, if you want to completely destroy your life, it's not hard to do. You can destroy yourself with drugs. You can destroy yourself with alcohol. You can destroy yourself being depressed with the abuse and the neglect you suffered as a child. You can destroy yourself with meaningless sexual exploits. You can destroy yourself with laziness, not working, not having a plan, just waiting for life to happen to you. There are countless ways that Jesus saved us from many of those places. Do you remember? He helped us find freedom from our addictions. He helped us forgive our abusers, and he helped us be free from all the shame and the hate that that caused us. He taught us that faithfulness and love go together. You can't have one without the other. He taught us how to work He taught us how to save. He taught us how to hold on to a dollar long enough to get a house. He taught us how to give a dollar away to someone in need so we don't worship ourselves and our many possessions. He has hidden us in the shadow of his wings. But if you're very quiet, you can still hear it if you listen. It's the sound of the weeping of those who still suffer. It's coming from the the ghetto of the inner city just 25 minutes from where we sit. It's coming from the stifling clouds of pollution in China. In the lonely hours of the night, it's coming from homes right here in this county. It's coming from your cousin's home. It's coming from your parents' home. It's coming from your sister's home. It's coming from the homes of those whom your business may be cheating or mistreating. But we are safe. We are secure. If we go where they are, we might get sick. We might get robbed. We might get shot. We might get stolen from. If we stand up for them, if we blow the whistle, we might lose our job. We might get sued It's dangerous to go where the hurting people are. Does God want to bring us from danger into safety just to send us back out into danger? Yes, he does that all the time. Now that you have been and are being saved, you must know that safety isn't everything. There is, we all know by now, a holy danger and a good danger and a danger that's worth risking because it serves a higher purpose and a higher power. When your brothers or sisters are suffering, you can't just leave them. You've got to turn the ship around, even though you've got the money to pay back your debts, even though you've got a gold medal, even though you've got a nice big house and a family back in Asia. If you live as a follower of Jesus very much longer, his call will come to you to go back into a dangerous place, a place maybe you once came from, but this time as an agent of the Almighty and the all-loving God. Or maybe it'll be even worse than that. He, He wants you to go back, not to a dangerous place, but to an inconvenient place. Here's a line that'll mess with you. It's been messing with me for a couple months since I heard another preacher say it. Many of us are ready to die for Jesus. It's very dramatic and also very unlikely to happen. Uh, But we don't want to be inconvenienced for him. That's messed with me for weeks. I now share it with you. (laughs) Let's talk about now how these stories end. Han Solo survived his ordeal. After blowing up not one but two Death Stars, there he is dancing with the Ewoks. But did you know that it almost did not end that way? Harrison Ford, the actor who played Han Solo, lobbied very hard for them to change the script so that Han Solo would be killed before the end of the movie. He thought it would make the story more real. And retire the character well to go from someone who once thought only of himself to someone who then gives his life for others. But Hollywood would not have it. And that's what makes Hollywood Hollywood, it's not real. Because usually, when you set out to give your life for others, that's exactly what happens. Eric Little, the Scottish Olympian who turned missionary living in a Japanese prison camp in 1945 got brain cancer. He had a stroke and so he was in bed and a woman was sitting with him. He was doing Bible study, even from his hospital bed. And she said, and remember this is a question being asked in a prison camp, what does God want us to do? And he said, surrender. And he held his head and he said, surrender. And he lay back, and he fell into a coma. And he died later that day. Surrendered. Paul, writing to Timothy about Onesephorus, writes in verse 18, May the Lord show him special kindness on the day of Christ's return. And you know very well how helpful he was in Ephesus. Sounds to me like Onesephorus died. I don't know, and I wouldn't want to guess how, but in the real world, this is how it goes. But we do it precisely because of these words Paul just said. May the Lord show him special kindness on the day of Christ's return. We know there is a day of Christ's return. This gives us the courage for everything that we do. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting and the judgment, and the mercy, and the righteousness of God. We know that those who give their lives for others are following in the very footsteps of Jesus. Jesus, who in Matthew chapter 5 gave us these words, God blesses you when people mock you, and persecute you, and lie about you, and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Now, I'm not telling anyone this morning to go out and, and just throw your life away. But if I don't tell you that there is such a thing as holy danger, I'm not a preacher of the gospel. It's not my place to hide the words of Jesus from you who said in Matthew chapter 16, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. We'll close today with one more story, a story from right here in the congregation. Of some folks who took this calling from God, heard the weeping of the suffering, and and found a way to make it come alive right here in the suburbs, right here in our own church. So let's uh, watch this video of their story together. I am Ty
1: Sisk.
2: I am Matt Sisk.
1: I am Karina Sisk. I am Tara Sisk. We are the Sisk family, and this is our story.
2: Lakeland developed a, a relationship with the Hope Center through Chris and Tammy Jaley. Uh, they knew Dan and Dan wanted to, Lakeland to get involved with things going on in the inner city. My spiritual strengths tend to be more just the, the doing, not so much the speaking and the talking. And for me personally getting involved with the Hope Center, that was a great opportunity to get involved. The original rollout of the mowing thing was called Nine Lots because the Hope Center owned a number of abandoned lots but they'd had old homes that had been torn down and now you've got these lots that need to be mowed and Kansas City had some regulations uh, about unruly yards that if they got too high the city would just mow them and then bill whoever the owner of the land was.
1: And so when he said he wanted to go down and mow on Saturdays um, we had to discuss whether or not to take the kids with them, we thought it'd be good for them to experience that and kind of see the inner city and not think that the world is our street, our suburb.
2: It was kind of a it was kind of a secondary thought, really. I went down, was mowing. Tara had to work on Saturdays, uh, and so it just made sense that the kids would come with me to to go to the Hope Center.
1: It was scary. I remember being a little bit fearful about it you hear all kinds of stories when Chris would come to church and talk about some of the things that happens with the community down there it does make you think about
2: it it's bad enough if it were just me down there but when you start taking your family into that situation there's a great deal of of just kind of trust and faith involved I think in that to where you're just saying is it is it stupid of me to be doing this you know or is this a, a god thing where you're just kind of like I I can't control this situation. And it it turned into probably a four or five year thing. I think Ty was probably four or five when he went and now he's eight. And Karina was, she was probably seven, six or seven, I think, but they would just go down and play. There was a, a little girl who lived on one of the streets and it just so happened she was in her front yard playing one time and the kids just kinda jumped in with her and started playing as well
1: Do you guys remember going down to the Hope Center at all? Yeah well, What kind of things do you remember about that? I remember
2: Center? feeding the kids anymore. Oh at the awards, at the awards banquets when we served yeah. dinner and stuff? What, what did you learn? I learned that some people can't always have the life that others have so we need to give them a chance to have that life instead of just keeping them down there. Why do you guys think we went down to the Hope Center to... To help. To mow. And
0: give people hope. Yeah? That's why it's called the Hope Center.
2: Oh, is that why it's called the Hope Center? That makes sense, yeah. Do you guys also remember all of the bottles? Trash. And trash. trash? I think sometimes that that was even something that you guys helped with, was picking up trash Mm and putting them in the bags and things like that. But do you guys remember why why we needed to mow
1: because Because the grass is really long
2: well it does make sense yes (laughs) but we we talked about how it was mainly to go down there and just kind of serve people
1: we had to decide okay so we want to show love to these people do we let our fears interfere with that or do we love regardless and and we decided to love regardless and I think anytime you're put in a fearful situation, it tightens your relationship with God regardless because here it's kind of out of your hands, so you got to lean on Him just a little more.
2: We are the Sisk family, and this is our story.
0: Let us stand together and we'll have a benediction, a good word, a blessing we can say over one another. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.